Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, would you please speak to us by your spirit, Uh, open our hearts, our minds, Lord, help us to hear what you have for us today, that we might be changed to be more like Christ, and it's in his name that we ask it, amen. Please be seated. So as we go through the Old Testament and we see this story, this narrative, this background that is part of our story, uh, besides for the sermons, uh, you may or may not have noticed this, Um, we are going through Psalm 78 and we're going through Acts, the the speech of Stephen. Um, Both of those are also recounting the same history that we are going through in our sermons. Uh, what the Sunday school that started this morning, if you missed that, go next week. It's also going through some of this Old Testament history, paralleling what we're doing in the sermon. Um, This is such a significant part of who we are, or at least it should be. Um, It's not just a bunch of Sunday school stories that you, okay, well, if we do a quiz, I can do the answers to it. I can tell you where that one came from. I can tell you who this guy is. It's much bigger than that. And so right now, as we go through this season, we're giving you multiple ways to hear that story about who we are in Christ with that background. If you move into a new neighborhood, a neighborhood where they are building homes, one of the things that you will very likely experience is multiple people from multiple companies, pest control companies, coming to your home because they want your business. I never had this in my other houses, but moving into a new neighborhood, multiple people from multiple pest companies came, and they're all trying to get everybody's business. The guy that came recently, he talked to my wife for a minute, and then she said, you need to go talk to him. So I went out to talk to him, and I have one major concern when it comes to pests. Um, I mean, two. Cockroaches are one, but they handle those pretty well. Can't stand cockroaches. They kind of give me the eebie-jeebies. The other are mosquitoes. She's up here distracting me by listening to my sermon from last week. While I'm giving this one. You know, there's a real life one going on right now. (laughs) But mosquitoes are just a challenge for me, so much so that like when Erin and I take walks, she does not have to use bug spray. I am her bug spray. I mean, mosquitoes will come to her, and as they get close to her, they go, oh, wait. There's something much more delectable right over there. And they go right around her and land on me. And I mean, the number of mosquito bites that... My daughter has the same thing. It's just the two of us. And so I'm asking this guy, what can you do about mosquitoes? Knowing that nothing. And he goes, oh, no, we take care of mosquitoes. Like my neighbors, too. You take care of their mosquitoes that fly over the fence to my house. And and as he's thinking, okay, well, we, we can spray the lawn... 
and we can kill all the eggs and things. That way they won't, you know, hatch. And, and here's what I appreciated. He knew what was most important to me. I was very upfront about it. And he started by trying to sell me on the idea that, yeah, I can take care of that problem too. And then he backed off and he got honest. And I thought, well, I may have to listen to this guy a little bit. And so I went further on and he was trying to buy my service. He wanted me to choose him. And part of his way he did that is he got personal. Tell me what bothers you about the bugs so I can take care of those things so you'll pick me over every other bug company out there. We are going to look at the Exodus this morning. And I want to tell you up front, in kind of a crude way, what God is doing with the Exodus. He is trying to buy his people's service. There are a bunch of other companies out there that they have to choose from, and he wants them to pick him above all the rest. And it's quite personal for him. He is going to talk to them in ways that are personal. He wants his people to choose him over all the gods of Egypt, over Pharaoh, over themselves, over anything else that they might try to put first. He wants them to choose him. him, him. Now, I want to answer two questions. Number one, why does God do the exodus the way that he does it? And the answer is because he wants his people's affection. I want to show you that. But number two, why? Why does God go through what he goes through? Why does God want his people to choose him first? And you may think to yourself, that sounds like an obvious answer. I will give you the obvious one. But I think the Exodus is doing something more than the obvious answer. So, number one, why does God do the Exodus in the way that he does it? Hey, let's think about the story for a minute. I'm going to read a couple parts in a second. But just, I want you to think about the story. All right, number one, he does it because he's faithful. He said and promised and made a covenant with Abraham, I will take care of your people. Okay, that's fine. But I want to give you some options of how he might have done this to fulfill that that are very different from what he actually did. Here's what God could have done. He could have just never let them go into slavery in the first place. He's strong enough to do that. He could have just smited Egypt in one fell swoop. Boom, my people are rescued. Come on out. You're safe. Or, as John the Baptist said, God can raise up children for Abraham from the stones. He didn't necessarily even need those people. He could have just raised up people from the stones. Why go through everything he goes through in the Exodus? In fact, of the approximately 20 times that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, 10 of them are God hardening his heart. This could have been a five-plague rescue. And God makes it a 10. Why? why? Why draw this out? Why go through all of these things that he goes through? Why not just go, okay, you're done. You're safe. You're with me. All things are good. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Why does God go through everything he goes through in the Exodus? Exodus chapter 6. Now, he told Moses to go in Exodus 3 and 4. And Moses does go to Pharaoh. You know what happens? Their slavery was really bad. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, now let my people go. And it gets so much worse. It was already really bad. It gets a whole lot worse. And so Moses goes back to God. And he says, why did you even send me? Like, why did you do this? What you did, God, it's similar to when Adam says, oh, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. That is Adam blaming God. Here is Moses doing the same thing. Why did you even send me? Like, you've made this so much worse. And here's what God does. Chapter 6, go to verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Now, we looked at that name last week. In this chapter, right here in this section, four times he's going to say that. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Here is the beginning of what God was doing in the Exodus. Yes, he could have just gone, you're free. He could have just said, I'm going to raise up some children from Abraham from these stones. He could have just never let them go into slavery. But what he does is he lets them go into Egypt to grow, to get into slavery. He lets the slavery get even worse until they're like, what in the world have you done? And then he steps up and goes, now. You are going to see, you are going to know, I am Yahweh. And that goes throughout the Exodus. In chapter 7, he'll say it again. I want you to know, I am Yahweh. In chapter 8, he will say that Pharaoh was raised up for this very reason, that the whole earth might know that I am Yahweh. Now turn to chapter 12. The final plague. Exodus chapter 12. And go to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am 
Yahweh. You know what the point of the Exodus is? I am Yahweh. And I want you to know and understand what that means. I am the great I am. And there is no God of Egypt. There is no nation on the earth. There is nothing that can stand against my will. I am Yahweh. Even the sea, he leads them out to the sea, and it's, it's not open when they get there. He could have just had the path ready. Take off, guys. Go right through there. He brings them to the edge. He lets the Egyptians get there so that it's all right there, and they're freaking out, and the Egyptians can see them. And then he opens up the sea so that everybody will know, I am Yahweh. I can part seas for people to come through. And then I can crush the greatest ruler of the nations. Now, turn to Exodus 20. Here's where it all comes to a head. God takes his people through everything that he does because God doesn't just want them to, God wants them to understand to a degree that they have to have a certain experience about who he is. Hey, this is not just love at first sight. This is, he has shown himself. He has done something that is undeniable. So that when you get to Exodus 20, look at verse 1. Now, you probably have a title right there. It says the Ten Commandments on the top. Um, there are three different versions of the Ten Commandments. There's Protestant, there's Catholic, and there's Jewish. Now, they're all the same words, but they are divvied up differently. Right? The commandments are not the same, and we're going to look at the Jewish reckoning of the commandments, which they don't call commandments. They're called the Ten Words or Sayings, or even things. And the first one is right at the beginning, which we don't have as our first one. Here's what it is. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God. And that's very specific. This is not I am the Lord God, but this is I am Yahweh, your God. Hey, there's all these other Egyptian gods out there. I am your God. That's what I was just proving to you. And then he connects it to the Exodus. I, Yahweh, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the first word in the Jewish reckoning of what we call the Ten Commandments. That's number one. Because everything hinges on that. That I, Yahweh, am your God. I want to be absolute first in your life, above everything else. I was taking my mom to the airport. It was a number of years ago, back when we lived at Frankfurt in the Tollway, and we're going out 635 toward the airport, and they were doing construction at that point. It was about 10 years ago. 
And as I'm taking her, we've got a good hour to get there, and then we hit that traffic, and we're right there, like you can see the airport, but we're barely moving. And I'm just frustrated thinking, I left plenty of time, and this is like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there should not be traffic right now. Well, as you're stuck in that traffic, to the right are all of the parking uh, rides, all those places where you can park off-site from the airport. And one of them struck me as interesting. It had three flags. And all of the flags were flying at the same height. There was the flag of the United States of America. There was the flag of the great state of Texas. And there was the flag of this company where you park your car. And I thought to myself, one of these things doesn't belong. Maybe two if you're not from Texas. But one of these things really does not belong. You've got the flag of the great United States of America. And you've got the flag of a company where you park your car to go on a trip. Those two things are not equal. Would you agree with that? Those are not equal. But they're all flying at the same height. And it got me thinking about my life. I want to give you some flags. And I just want you to think about these. I'm going to give you some flags. Your family. Your job. Money. Your reputation. How people view you or see you or think of you. Maybe even your self-esteem. Your physical prowess. Your intellect. Your intelligence. There are so many flags that we are all flying. But what is the highest in your life? What is the thing that you turn to? What is the thing that upsets you the most if something goes wrong with it? What is the thing that you rely on or think about the most? Or let's get very practical. Two things. If you were to show somebody your schedule, your calendar, what would it show that you value? What is it that you schedule time for? Or your bank account. Where do you put your money? What is the highest flying flag in your life? Now, I want to be realistic here for a minute. If you work full-time, you probably put more time into that than anything else. My suggestion today is not that you quit your job and go wander around as a follower of Jesus. I'm not suggesting that at all. However, how do you think of your job? And how often do you think of your job? And if you have a chance to put your family or God before it, do you make that choice when the choice is there? Or do you still choose the job? What is the highest flying flag in your life? Because the exodus was about God saying, I will be the highest or I will not be one. 
you cannot put me below anything else. Right? What's interesting about this whole thing is, so far in the scriptural story, God does not say this, I am the only God. That is true, and he will say that later. Monotheism is giant in Judaism. However, he doesn't start there. Because God doesn't say this, I'm your only choice. Because whether he's the only God or not, we all know we make choices outside of him all the time. What he says is, I'm your best choice. Will you make that choice? Will you place me first? Why? Why is this so important? Why does God go through and, and bring his people out of Egypt in the way that he does, bring them back to the mountain, come down and fire on the mountain, and speak all of these words to him? Why is it so important that he is number one, period? Look back at Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is the precursor. It's right before he's going to give the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. What we think of as the Ten Commandments and the 613 commandments. In chapter 24 of Exodus, he will solidify that covenant with blood. And he will use language very reminiscent of what you hear at the Last Supper. But 19 is this kind of precursor. Okay, he has shown himself as Yahweh. He has brought them out. He has brought them to this place. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's what we've been talking about. That was the, the whole foundation for all the rest of it. I, Yahweh, am your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the foundation. Verse 5. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, God wants us and them and all his people to put him first because God has, my goodness of the weather apps wrong. Amen. Sorry, Lord, I interrupted the sermon for that, but wow, he wants us to be indoors today. God wants us to put him first because he has huge plans for his image bearers that you and I cannot do on our own. He has giant plans for us, and you and I in our own strength cannot do them. He just listed some of them for his people. He said, you're going to be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Can I tell you that I can screw that up? I can mess those things up really well. I'm going to be your treasured possession, God, and I'm going to start thinking about all the ways that I can do it and what I can do to make that true. And then when I fail, I'm going to start wondering if I still am his possession and how screwed up that gets and how it messes up my psyche and I'm going to be a kingdom of priests for you? Like, I'm supposed to bring you to other people? I'm supposed to minister to other people? 
That scares me. I don't know what to do. I'm going to mess it up, and I'm probably not even going to do it. I'm just going to go into my shell. Like, I can screw that up too. You want me to be a holy nation? These are really big callings. But look at how he says it. Not you can be my treasured possession, or you might be my treasured possession, or you could earn being my treasured possession. You shall be it. God has a plan to make us these things. Not in our strength, but in his. How? And how does it connect to putting him first? What is the connection between these things? Um, I always wanted to play violin. I just, I love violin. Um, I come, I, I was born in Bakersfield, California. It's like Hickville. There's not a whole lot of violin. There's not even a whole lot of fiddling. There's just not a lot of that there. And, and so I never really got an opportunity until I got to college and I met my wife, or who would be my wife. And she was a phenomenal violinist. Still is. Um, during this time, she was practicing eight hours a day. I mean, just imagine that. Five days a week, eight hours a day, she's practicing. She was phenomenal. And I'm like, I want to learn to play. Well, her teacher agreed because of her. She was his star pupil. He would never have taken a brand new student. I never played violin. But he's like, I, I will teach him for a year. And so I got lessons with Dr. James Stern because of my wife to learn to play violin. Now, I don't know if you've ever played violin before or ever tried. I was a guitar player at the time. I'd taken classical guitar. I played guitar decently well. Violin is hard. I mean, it is a hard instrument. There's no frets. And you have to hold it in this really, really awkward position and like you gotta hold the bow right and just the whole thing is hard and weird and you sound like you are killing something when you start. And anybody who has kids that have started playing violin, you know what I'm talking about. Like there's something dying in this room as they're practicing. It's a hard instrument. Well, here's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to play like my wife. Or at least I wanted to be able to play The Devil Went Down to Georgia. I mean, come on. If you're going to play violin, that's, that's what you do, right? You've learned to play that song. But here, here's how I started learning to play. He had to teach me to order myself in such a way that somewhere down the road, I could be a good violinist. And the way he did that is he worked on individual things with me. Where do you hold your hand? How do you hold the bow? Let's work on this note. Let's work on just doing what appear to be very simple things that are so important for the long-term goal. If I had said, hey, uh, Devil Went Down to Georgia, that's what I want to play. Can you just teach that to me? No. It doesn't matter how good of a teacher he was. I was never going to be able to do that. I could not just go, I'm going to do this. Here we go. Right? And I certainly could never have gone just, I'm going to play like my wife now. Here we go. I couldn't do that anyway, even if I'd been doing it since that point. But there was an ordered plan that would lead to that. Hey, it's the same plan that you see in sports. You see it in music. You see it in basically everything. You're here, and you're going to get to over there. But it's not going to be by jumping to over there. 
It's going to be by ordering your life in such a way. If you're an athlete, it's going to be nutrition and exercise and sleep and certain practices that you do over and over again that lead to that. They produce that. God's plan is the same. God is not saying, and you can all breathe a sigh of relief for those of you who need to, God is not saying that you need to walk out of here today and be the perfect kingdom of priests. You need to walk out of here today and be the perfect holy nation, all 100% of it. Just get out there and do it. Go. What he says is, go back to the text. Verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice, which in Hebrew, literally, it doesn't say that. What it says is, if you will indeed really hear my voice. There's no obey in there. It's an infinitive absolute construction where you have the word hear twice. To hear hearing is what it says. And it's a way of emphasizing, if you will really hear my voice, hear my word, and keep my covenants. I'll state it a different way. If you will order your life according to my word, you will be these things. You don't have to worry about being them. You just need to look at my word and order your life according to it because it will produce these things. Will you order your life according to Yahweh's word? And this brings us full circle. Here's what he wanted. He wanted his image bearers to be these things. These amazing, beautiful, wonderful things. Be my possession out of all of these other countries, out of all these other people. Be my kingdom of priests. Be my holy nation. But the way you're going to do it is not by going, I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to go out there and do that. The way you're going to do it is by hearing my voice by ordering your life according to my word, but the only way you're going to do that, now we're back to the beginning. The only way you're gonna do that is if you believe my voice is the most important voice you hear. That my word is the most important word you hear. Because right now, there are all these competing voices. There's all these things telling you this is better, this is better. And, and we live in a society that is very skeptical. Think about it. Your doctor tells you to do something, you're not sure about it, so you go home and check Wikipedia, right? You do your own research. We're gonna make sure my doctor, who has an MD, who studied this, who probably doesn't know as much as Wikipedia, or me, really knows what they're talking about. We do it across the board with all kinds of authorities now. We are skeptical of authority. We are skeptical of God. And every time that we think, all right, God, I know, wants my life to go this direction. I'm not sure that's going to work, so I'm going to go over here. You've just raised your own flag above his. You've just said, I trust me more than I trust him. I trust whatever it is more than I trust him. But in order for us to be who he wants us to be, it starts with trusting and hearing his voice above all the other voices. 
And so what does he do for his people? I am Yahweh. I am bigger and stronger and better and more powerful and more dedicated to you than anybody else, even yourself. Will you trust me? Will you put me first and order your life in that way? Make me king. There is a ruler from the 1700s named Frederick the Great. You've probably all heard the name. Um, he is such a um, good battle king that he's still studied today by generals. And Frederick the Great, in a particular battle that we have a, a record of what he told his generals, um, this battle, they were going to go up against a force that was at least twice their size. And here's what he says to them. I am marching to attack this position. I have no need to explain my conduct or why I am determined on this measure. I fully recognize the dangers attached to this enterprise, but in my present situation, I must conquer or die. If we go under, all is lost. Bear in mind, gentlemen, that we shall be fighting for our glory, for the preservation of our homes, and for our wives and children. Those who think I can do, um, those who think as I do, can rest assured that if they are killed, I will look after their families. If anybody prefers to take his leave, he can have it now. But if he will cease to have any claim, but he will cease to have any claim on my benevolence. He gave that speech on December 3rd, 1957. And on December 5th, he marched with a force half the size that he went against. And he conquered them. But the question is, why did these guys follow? Because they knew they were going into a war they should not have won. And the reason they followed him is because on November 3rd of that same year, he fought another battle. And he was outnumbered by twice as much. And at the end of that battle, the casualties for his enemies were over 10,000. The casualties for him, less than 600. He proved himself. And his men followed him. And it wasn't his first victory. Fred Frederick had a number of amazing victories throughout his career. He was a little bit of a nutcase, but he had a number of wonderful victories but he proved himself, and his men were, I'm going to go with you. I will follow you into this. God has proven himself. And every Sunday, we remember it. Every Sunday, we celebrate it right here at the table. Every Sunday, we remember what Christ accomplished. He overcame death, sin, and the devil. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. That's who we follow. Will we put him first above all things? I leave you with this image. Adolf Menzel, a German painter, painted a picture of that scene of Frederick the Great standing with his generals around a fire 
It was such an amazing speech that a lot of these guys recorded things later on, and there's descriptions of it, and he painted it. He saved one figure, actually there's two figures, but there's one important figure that he saved, the king himself. He outlined the king in white, painted everybody else, and then died before ever painting the king in the picture. Everybody else was there, but the most important figure never took his place in that painting. And if you go look it up online right now, you can see the picture, and you can see where Frederick is supposed to be standing is a white outline, a white shape. But the king was never actually put in the picture where he belongs. Don't let that be your life. Put the king in his place as the highest flying flag in your life and order yourself according to his word. Then you will be everything he's called you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our King, our Ruler, the Almighty, Yahweh, Lord, help us to so fully trust you that we really, truly honor you by ordering our lives after your word. By making that our priority, even when we are challenged, even when we in our own wisdom think that a better option is there, through our fears and our doubts, through our pride, through our passions to have stuff that maybe you don't have for us, Lord, in all ways, will you be king? Will we make that choice that we might live kingdom-first lives to honor you? In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.